Uh, as you know, we have been tracking for quite some time together through the book of Galatians, and I hope you haven't gotten bored with it. I know it can become somewhat dense, uh, meaning it's uh, quite a bit of material at times. And I know also, man, if you're, if you're you know, I, I not only have an opportunity to be a pastor, but I'm also kind of a participant because I sit out there with you from time to time, like, you know, you know every other week. And so, you know, I'm, I'm listening to the, to the book of Galatians, you know, whether I'm listening to it at home or whether I'm reading it at home every week. Uh, and I'm going, it's like, oh my gosh, the Apostle Paul, like he has one instrument in this band and it's the, the gospel drum and he's just beating it over and over again. But I guess what? I was like, Lord, uh, there's obviously something that you desire for us to know about you and this is the cadence. This is the rhythm that you have chosen. And I want to fully receive everything that you intended for me uh, in that. So I hope that you are not growing weary in hearing uh, about the gospel in this way through the lens of the book of Galatians. Now, uh, in previous weeks, you've heard the Apostle Paul build his argument for the superiority of the gospel over the law, the superiority of the, 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 the spirit over the law, the superiority of Jesus Christ over anything else that they might grow to depend upon. You've heard just over and over again, Paul, again, as I say, beat this drum. And last week, if you were here for uh, Ryan's message, he preached to you from the title of Expired, kind of giving the analogy as to how there are good things that can reach the end of their optimal utility in our lives, like milk, and then they need to be set aside. And then, of course, uh, the Lord is doing something else in our lives, not at the expense of what has expired, because what has expired was responsible for kind of helping get us to this place. Well, in Ryan's message, there was also this additional note that kind of showed up in the text, and that's what I want to capitalize on today, and that's where the Apostle Paul begins to introduce this idea of us being heirs with Christ, heirs with Christ. So such an appropriate worship uh, tone that we had there, talking about us being children of God. And so I want to really press into what it means to be heirs of God, and I'm going to begin by reading our text, which has always kind of been my, my rhythm as a preacher, but with some very specific emphasis uh, on some of the uh, vocabulary that Paul uses that I believe is pertinent for us to fully appreciate today's passage. All right, Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 reads as follows, I mean that the heir as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is under, uh, though, excuse me, though he is the owner of everything, he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. And in the same way, we also were children. We were, we were, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And then here comes your big gospel glimpse. You look for portraits of the gospel always in your Bible study. Here comes one. Here's one that may be a little bit different from what you heard before. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under law to redeem those who were under the law. These two passages capitalize on both the simultaneously deity and humanity of Christ, born of a woman. Woman doesn't have a seed, so I can be born of a woman. He has a divine father. That's the deity of Christ in view. And then, of course, the humanity of Christ, because he is indeed human, fully human, fully God. This is what's in view in the gospel. And then, of course, he is fully humble because he comes not as a lawbreaker, but to live under the law. But why? And that's a part of the great discovery we need to make today so that we might receive adoptions as sons, adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent his, the, the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, you are also an heir through God. Today's message title is Above the Law. 
above the law. Now, when I say that phrase, above the law, probably some of the first ideas that enter into your mind are, are, are maybe that of a politician or a police officer who perhaps breaks the law. A person who lives a life that is highly hypocritical, not beholden to the law. Someone who doesn't seem to abide by the same standards that they either crafted if they were a lawmaker or that they are supposed to be uh, uh, helping to carry out if they are a, um, uh, a law enforcement officer, right? When you hear somebody saying that they're above the law. But I believe, actually, in a very interesting and different way, not a hypocritical way, but I believe that what we see at work within the gospel and also painted out in, a, in this picture of the book of Galatians is that God has actually called his people to live above the law. What do I mean, though? What do I mean? Think about these words from the Lord Jesus during the time of his earthly ministry. During Jesus' ministry, one of the great tensions between he and his opponents was regularly this thing of, man, who is this guy? We don't care about miracles. He's doing them on the Sabbath. He doesn't honor the law. On a regular basis, now, now Jesus clearly could have chose to do miracles on a Wednesday. Clearly could have chose to, to do some of his great exploits and his great works on any day of the week. Why would he do them on the Sabbath? He knew what he was doing. Was Jesus above the law? Not at all. Not in the, not in the, the traditional, not in the, 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 the kind of contemporary sense. Jesus would say as early as Matthew chapter 5, listen, you guys think the way that I'm talking about the law, that I came here to, to do away with it or somehow break it. He says, no, I didn't come to dismantle the law. I came to fulfill it. You had better believe that not one jot or tittle, smallest characters in the Hebrew alphabet, alphabet will ever pass from the law until it is all fulfilled. Jesus had a great respect from the law, quoted it often, relied on it regularly, born under it, and always maintained it. So what's up with this tension of Jesus seemingly pushing, pushing the envelope on doing things on the Sabbath that would give people the public impression that he was somehow above the law. Because in a sense, he did want us to live above the law. Where do I get this from? Jesus would say this phrase in one of his public preaching moments. He would say, listen, y'all, the man was not made for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was made for the man. What did he mean by that? Well, the Sabbath, if you know how it, was, how it came into to be codified in the law, the Bible says that the Lord worked six days and then he rested on the seventh. Therefore, you do the same. The whole idea behind the law was a tool to give the creation a way to be synchronized with the creator. This ethic of how can we be on the same page, how can you as a creature made in my image do life in a way that is a full reflection that you and I are in lockstep, that you, are, you, are, you and I are on the same page, we are in relationship. That's what the law seeks to showcase. It is supposed to be a tool, not a taskmaster, not a keeper, not something that, that kept us under bondage. Now, we do know that the law is incapable of giving us the full contour of who God is, but kind of like the great game of connect the dots, it does have utility. You know what I mean by connect the dots, right? If you follow it, one, two, three, four, it's like, oh, look, I think that's a beak. One, five, six, seven, eight, but you continue to, to kind of keep up with, the, with, the, with, the, with what's happening in this very simple and elementary way. If you follow the connect the dots, it's like, oh, that's a toucan. Oh, that's a stork. Now I get the picture. And even though the picture that comes forward is only one-dimensional, if you will, it's not able to give the full 3D or the multi-dimensional view of who God is, it does at least give a sketch. And that is the purpose and the utility of the law, to sketch out in the hearts of people what might God look like. The law was created for us. We weren't created for the law. 
And so this idea of living above the law is, I believe, something that Jesus wants all those who follow him to do, as is evidenced in today's text when it says, but, but then the fullness of time, when, it made, when, 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 when the father thought it was all right, he sent his son born of a woman under the law. But he didn't stay under the law. He would then redeem those who were under the law, and then he would be raised from the dead. And something else very powerful and special happened that are later described in the scriptures as that we were also raised with him. Not just will be, we were. Where do I get this from? Uh, several ideas that I want you to capitalize on when you look at this particular passage that I just read. God wants us to live at a new level. The gospel calls us to live at a new level, and I would call that level above the law, but not in hypocrisy. What do I mean? Living above the law or living in a way that is at this new gospel level that the scriptures call us to, first beginning with the Galatians and now to us, I believe can be characterized first and foremost by the fact that we've got a new position. We've got a new position. Where do I get this from? Notice that in the first few verses of what I read, it says that, listen, I mean that you are heirs. Now, as long as the heir is a child, he seems to be no different from a slave, even though he's the owner of everything. And then Paul bounces down and says, now, listen, you too were the same way. You were these children, even though you were heirs of everything, you didn't know it. This idea of being an owner of everything, but yet once we are redeemed from the law by Christ from underneath the law, here's what happens. We are given a brand new seat. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 and following say that this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and listen to this, raised up with him, and he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We've got a new seat, a new position. If we're really in Christ, we have, have a new seat, a new perspective, a new position. And so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. What is this new position? What is it about? Well, this new position, I believe, first and foremost, isn't just one in title. It's also, I believe, one that ought to bring about a new perspective. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says even more. It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Where? In heavenly places. The same place that we later are told we are then seated with Christ because we are heirs with him. The Bible goes on to tell us of places you might be familiar with, the, the, the great locus classicus, the best text for spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter two, uh, 6, verse 12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, thrones and dominions in heavenly places. And then we are subsequently told how to do battle in this other place as if we are there, because we are, according to the previous chapters. We have been given a new position. If we are in Christ, we've been given a new position. Now, you might be saying, well, Pastor Rod, what, when did I get to leverage this new position? Because my life feels real elementary. I still feel really captive to the elementary principles of the world. If you've ever watched the Falcons game, you've ever seen uh, old Arthur Blank when he comes down to the sideline. Have you ever seen him? He's got that signature pose. He's always dressed to the nines. He's kind of like this. Arthur Blank is the owner of the Falcons if you're not a sports fan. Now, and I want you to follow me very carefully about having a new position. Arthur Blank can come down on the sideline and he can stand next to the water boy, a cheerleader, a coach, or even a player. And when Arthur Blank is standing there watching a the game, Falcons, let's just say they're at 3 and 25, you know, third down 25, likely they're not going to be able to convert. Now, I'm going to tell you what's happening. Both the water boy, the coach, the cheerleader are all seeing the same thing. 
The cheerleaders probably saying to themselves, oh, it's third and 25. All right, girls, you know, it's time to say this, you know, go Falcons. And then boom, extremely high kick. She's got a routine going. The water boy is probably going, all right, the offense is not going to convert this. They're going to come off the field. We need to make sure we got the hydration ready for all the players so we can squirt it in their mouth right through their helmet so they have to take it off or whatever this player prefers in terms of to, re to refresh himself because the offense is getting ready to come off the field and the punt team is getting ready to go up. That's what the water boy is doing. You know what Arthur Blank is doing? All three of these people looking at the same event. Arthur Blank is thinking about personnel, acquisitions, trade position, contracts, who's going to be here next year and who's not? How can we strengthen our team for years to come? Not just in the moment, not just in this one down, not just the next down. That's the coach's job, what's going to happen at the next down. What's going to happen next year when the draft comes around? That's what's going through Arthur Blank's mind. Why? Because he has a different position than the water boy. In Christ, we are not called to live like water boys at the sideline as we watch the game of life. We are called to look at the game of life through completely different eyes and from a different perspective. So this idea of being heirs with Christ and seated in heavenly places doesn't mean that we are somehow teleported into this super high angle. But I do believe there is a different perspective that is available when we view things from heaven's vantage point. Because there's a completely different set of options that open up to us when we see the problems of life. When we see the issues of life, we have other options that the world does not have access to. How do I know this? The Bible says, not some other book that I read, the Bible says that I then, you then, if I'm in Christ, not only am I seated there, but I have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So every single resource that I need to navigate life well is already assigned to me in Christ. And then it says, oh, by the way, just in case you're still viewing things on a very elementary level, you do know that you don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That unique new position and enterprise is all brought about by us placing faith in Jesus and then him raising us up to be seated there. Now, let's just be honest. We don't always realize this because we may have relegated our life in Christ to just being consent to an initial set of propositions that are different from the Muslim, that are different from the Catholic, that are different from the Jehovah's Witness, that are different from the Buddhist. I just got a different book and I've got a different set of traditions. And if that's all we've done, we are not availing ourselves of the unique position that is available to us, or not even available, the position that we do have. Now the question is, how do I orient myself? How do I acquaint myself with this new position? If you've ever been on a, on a new job, there was a time of orientation that was necessary. Well, you not only got introduced to who the new organization was, but there was all this documentation placed in front of you, things you needed to read and immerse yourself in so that you could understand. And how many of you recognize that as a new employee, sometimes you, you, you live below your employment level because there was stuff in the benefits package that you knew not of? And so what I'm saying is, ladies and gentlemen, the Word of God is not just this very pedantic discipline of make sure you got it in so that you can track well on the Bible reading app, but it is essential to your orientation in knowing what it is to live like an heir of Christ. We've got a new position. 
Our new position in Christ should produce a new approach to life. My approach to life ought to be regularly increasing in its spiritual import and also in its practical implications. I ought to regularly be getting newly and freshly and more deeply acquainted with what it means to be an heir of Christ and not just a follower of traditions, not just a church attendee, not just a routine prayer or Bible reader. I want to know what it means to be an heir of Christ. Well, how can I know this? Is it totally contingent on my effort? No. The same text that I just read that told you that you were an heir of Christ also said that once you place faith in Jesus, something very particular and powerful happened. In verse 6 it says, and because you are sons and daughters, God has sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. What's interesting about that text is in other places of the scripture, the Bible says, who has, rhetorically, who has, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, who has known the mind of the Lord that they might instruct him? Nobody. But we do have the mind of Christ. So wait a minute. I'm not all-knowing. I'm not all-wise. I'm not all-powerful. But you have given me the mind of Christ. And then you tell me in the Scriptures that you have given me your spirit, the spirit of, you give me the Holy Spirit, which is also the spirit of your Son, whereby I am able to cry, Abba, Father. I'm able to come to you, depend on you, and to know you. Think about these words. We have a, not only a new position, but we also have a new connection. Um, in our, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, our children are, are uh, you know, they're, they're becoming adults. They're 18 and 21. But during the uh, uh, time of their lives where they were not re ready for a phone, one of our rhythms as a family was this. You know, we would have the iPhone 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. And as soon as we moved up, we would hand them a phone. But we would hand them a phone but not one that was connected. You see, they could, they could pick it up and they could play. They could pick it up and they could press buttons. They could pick it up and enjoy the brilliant lights and the technology, but they couldn't conduct business on two continents. They couldn't keep up with the time in Tokyo as well as in London. They couldn't answer emails in the middle of the night. They couldn't cut deals, huh? They couldn't answer the concerns of patients. They couldn't take call from the hospital. They could just sit there and giggle and, and look like they were doing what we do. Ladies and gentlemen, I say this to no insult, but I say it as a, as a reality. Prayer is different for those of us who are sons and daughters of God than those who just say they pray, but if they don't have a relationship with God. We have a new connection. The, the, the work of the Holy Spirit not only uniquely causes our hearts to cry, Abba, Father, which is the opening words to the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray, it is the thing that validates our prayer and, and assures that God actually hears us. I know everybody uses the word prayer, but there is a distinct difference. The prayers of the world are just an iPhone with no service. Yes, it's got a lot of the moving features, but it's not until it is connected and it, it, it humbles itself and it, and, and, it, and it seeks the heart of God. Anybody can make a, a, a myriad of requests. And let's just be honest. Many of our first introductions to prayer as a life is modeled very much around making requests. And I believe that God honors that, loves that, and wants us to make requests. But I also want to walk you through just a couple of words of Jesus when he taught his disciples how to operate in this newfound connection. 
In Matthew chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, we kind of know what follows that. It's the Lord's Prayer. But before we get into the Lord's Prayer, the Lord had a little bit of a, a runway he wanted to give, a little bit of an orientation. He wanted to set the tone. In, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 8 and 9, Jesus calls Jesus says, listen, don't pray like the world. Don't pray like the hypocrites. Don't believe that you have to have a special vocabulary in order to get access to God. Also, be reminded, everything you're getting ready to ask for, your Father in heaven already knows. So if my Father in heaven already knows what I'm getting ready to ask about, whatever I'm asking about ain't the point of prayer. The point of prayer is chameleon, not communicating my list. The point of prayer is to connect deeply with the one who gives me this deep sense of urgency to cry out and to become acquainted with him. Can you imagine how, how lazy and how lethargic my relationship with my wife would be if the only thing that it was marked by was my request? She comes, come into the service. Did you bring a breakfast biscuit for me to eat in between the services? And then I move on. I get back home. Have you cooked yet? We get ready to go to sleep. Did you send the check for this bill or that bill? Can you imagine if a life was only marked by request and not by communion? So how much more? If in our best, most, in our best relationships with our, with our neighbors, they are marked by a deep sense of communication. And the communication and the communion creates the context in which we can convey our list. And people are gladly able to satisfy those. But listen to this. Communion not only contextualizes our list because we grow to realize through communion what I could never ask my wife and what I, can freely, what I freely can. Therefore, the prayer life is not one of trial and error where we're trying to figure out, is this officially falling under the name of Jesus? It is a lifestyle of deep connection where we are called to cry out to God and get to know him. Challenge yourselves if you haven't already done so. Challenge yourselves to see if you might be able to. Just kind of take your prayer life, if you're a heavy request person, and kind of tilt it on its head to see if you could spend just a time of prayer just talking to God without asking anything. See if you can do it. Again, asking is not bad but it can't be only because prayer is about communion, not just conveying or communicating my list. But there's something else that Jesus says or that you'll hear uh, kind of echoed out in the Lord's Prayer, right? So he tells us not to use a bunch of fancy vocabulary because that's not what's going to get you heard. What gets you heard is the fact that you've got this unique connection, that you are, you, are, you are children of God. I think we can all identify with maybe a child who can't fully communicate uh, in, in great words and they're squealing at the top of their lungs, and the parent, with painstaking effort, wants to know exactly what that child's trying to say, even though they can't formulate full sentences. You are a child of God. It's not about the words. But there's something else that God also does through the adventure of prayer. The Lord's Prayer says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Lord, utilize my life as a conduit through which whatever it is you're doing in the unseen, you make it visible in the scene. Utilize me. So prayer then in its first priority is about communion and commission. Lord, who are you and how you want to use me? And then what follows communion and commission? 
communication on my list because what I need flows out of me knowing him and knowing what he wants me to do. I don't know of a parent that would dispatch or send a child out to do something and not subsequently give them everything that they need to get it done. This is why Jesus would say later in Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, don't worry about it. Look at birds. Look at the bees. Look at the grass on the field. Seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all the stuff you need to be added to you. Why? Because your priorities are aligned. Therefore, your list is now properly prioritized. You're not the person who goes to the grocery store like me just raking down cereal because it's in a colorful box. You, 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 you go before the Lord, not just asking before because it pops up in your desires, but because you know what aligns with the priorities of his kingdom. We've got a new position and we've got a new connection. We've got a new connection. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, I used to always be bewildered by this passage. Pray without ceasing. Lord, there's going to be a lot of people in the world with bad knees. Oh, you don't just mean making formal liturgical requests, but live a life of regular communication and conversation. Anybody remember when you were, uh, you, might, you might be newly in love or, or moving around the contours of exploring new emotional partnerships. <laughs> Think about how frequently and for seemingly nothing you communicate what you're about to do. Where you at? Oh, just thinking about you. You sleep yet? No. <laughs> I'm waiting for you to, you know, hang up. First thing in the morning, have no content. Good morning. <laughs> if you don't hear from them, I didn't, I didn't get a good night from you. What happened? Have, am I the only one? Isn't it so interesting? And, and, and much of that communication is not marked by any unique requests other than, I just want to see how you're doing. I want to see, I'm, I'm at my job by working. <laughs> That's what happens after the, you know, the relationship is already, you know, <laughs> permanent. How are you doing today? My usual, you know. But again, that's, that's stuff for the marriage retreat. Um, <laughs> nevertheless, this new connection. But notice how, again, the best and most intimate of our relationships are not marked exclusively by requests, but by connection and communion. And I believe that this is where God would have us with this unique deposit of his Holy Spirit, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. It is about connecting to the one who is listening before it is about conveying my list. I think this is a reflex that we need to shift. But in addition to that, I think the Apostle Paul conveys to the Galatian church something else that we can also learn from, that we not only have got new a new position as heirs of Christ, a new connection as being now endued or indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Christ, but we've also got some new possessions. There's some new things that belong to us that might look the same as they did before, but they are significantly different. We've got new possessions. What do I mean? There are some unique possessions. Faith, hope, and love, I believe, are things that it's vocabulary that is very common to almost everybody. Everybody has an idea, a working idea of faith, hope, and love. And we can see inside Christ and outside Christ, faith, hope, and love being operative. But these are things that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, verse 13, chapter 13, verse 13, that the Lord gives some particular emphasis to, faith, hope, and love. Now, what's interesting about faith, hope, and love is that there are two different versions of them out there. One of them is insubstantive, and one is very substantive, and I'll explain in just a moment. I was watching the Bama-Arkansas game uh, a couple of weeks ago, 
And uh, this was a game where, as the prognosticators and all other meaningful fans and even those who are haters would know to be fact. Alabama is expected to win this game, and therefore, uh, they come out the gates 28 to nothing, unanswered points. But suddenly something happens. Hope shifts. Bryce Young is hurt on one of the plays. When Bryce Young gets hurt, there's all of a sudden a diminution in the hope of the Bama folk. Uh, and then all of a sudden there is its increase in hope in the eyes of those who were root for Arkansas. As the game advanced, Arkansas began to answer, uh, begin to score three unanswered points. And all of a sudden you could see hope in the faces of the Arkansas fans. I mean, it was like it was their wedding day. I mean, it was so, it was so vibrant. They were so alive. And then suddenly, Alabama's number two man began to put on a clinic of his own. Immediately, they began to score, and you could see the hope leaving their cheeks. <laughs> oh, it was interesting to see how, how hope, but what was hope hanging itself on? Hope had a substance. It had a substance. It wasn't just people were not screaming because they imagined that they could win. They now begin to have material evidence that it was possible. And you could see it in their faces. You could see it in their, hear it in their voices and the way that they were chanting and cheering. Likewise, the disciples following Jesus for three years, watching, watching Jesus, boom, work with all kinds of power. But not only that, just a profound preacher, life-changing messages. But then he would turn around and he would deal so precisely and handily with his opponents. They were in love with Jesus. They were super excited. Peter was so enthused as a fan of Jesus that when Jesus said, I'm going to be, you know, I'm going to be leaving soon, Peter went over and told Jesus, like, nah, man, you ain't going nowhere. You stand with us, brother. You stand with us. We're not letting you go to heaven. That's not God's will. Let me talk to you about that. He had to get openly rebuked. I mean, Peter was so emboldened as a fan of Jesus. And guess what? Jesus then goes to the cross. They assume that he's down for the count. The star quarterback of Christianity goes down. And the disciples don't just say, well, next time. No. They literally were going back fishing. The Bible says that they were going back to the life that they lived before. They didn't even go back to a medium version of following Jesus. Like, well, we'll just do some, some, some community groups at our homes. We'll just do, you know, we'll just give to the poor and do alms. No, they were going back to ground zero. They said, we're going to go back fishing. Our quarterback is dead. But what happened once they became fully aware that the resurrection was real? The same disciples that were getting ready to go back fishing were willing to put themselves in harm's way and stand in front of government officials sharing the gospel even though it was illegal. And they were literally laughing with joy because they had gotten beaten for sharing the gospel in the city and drug out the city. Faces bruised, backs busted, teeth shattered. No great dental plans in Israel. These guys were looking rough, and they took joy in the fact that they had been mistreated just like Jesus because they remembered his words, if they hate me, they're going to also hate you. They took joy in the fact that they were even able to be like Jesus even in being brutally beaten. How is that possible? It's possible because they got new possessions. They have a substantive hope. Their hope had a substance. The resurrection really did happen, and that's going to be our heritage, our inheritance also. So it didn't just have heavenly implications. It had on earth implications in the way that they were able to go about sharing the gospel, in the way that they showed up. They got new possessions. 
The new possessions were faith, they were hope and love. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a litany of other things we have, but I want to capitalize on these. Because this is the same vocabulary that the world might use. But I believe, apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, faith, hope, and love are just intense imaginations and emotions. They have some of the same rhythms and movements as real hope, but real hope is like this. When I was a little boy, this is the stuff that Ryan talks about. Oh, he's going to tell you guys a story. When I was a little boy, one of my simple joys were balloons. Oh, I mean, I love remote control vehicles and all that kind of stuff. And I grew up and got remote control airplanes, cars, race tra electric racetrack. I mean, stomp of trucks. I mean, go-kart, motorcycle, all of that. I mean, I love all that stuff. But a balloon, oh, irreplaceable joy. There was something when I was a little one about a balloon that was so fascinating to me. But not just any balloon. They had to be helium. Them shiny ones that you could punch and not bust. Oh, I remember, and you could only get balloons at this time at a special place, at least in my life. I mean, Y'all are spoiled, but, but you could only get a balloon if you got invited to a birthday party and their parents sprung for the helium. Although, and, and you, would, you would be like, oh man, the, party, the, the cake has already been cut, the toys have been distributed, <sighs> they're about to pass out these balloons. Can I get two tied around my wrist so it doesn't get away? Hopefully, I can ride home in the car with my mom, and she won't make me get rid of them because she's talking about, I can't see out the rearview mirror. Put them down. And then you're trying, you and your sister trying to hold the balloons down, and hopefully the, the static on your sweater don't bust it. I mean, it was made. Having a balloon was a cherished commodity. You would take the balloon home, and it would be like a little new toy. It would be, I, I would come home from school every day to see if it was still high, like it'd be up in the ceiling. Then I'd come home from school, it'd be halfway. Then I'd come home and be down here. But it was still so much more fun than a regular balloon because I could, I could play volleyball. I could do all kind of stuff with it. And it would just move so beautifully. I just love the grace of balloons. But you know what was interesting about that? I tried to replicate my own helium balloons. I was like, let me, let me just get a pack of balloons from the store, mama. So I did. And I went, <laughs> and those balloons had so little fun because they fell straight to the ground. They, they didn't have that same... Mm, let me tell you something. Faith, hope, and love in the life of a non-believer is that it looked the same, but it's full of your own air. It's what you put in there. It doesn't have anything in there that gives it lift, that gives it life, that gives it vitality on its own. And so don't, and so, so listen to me. I don't know when you got saved. Well, you got saved as a child, you got saved as an adult. You and I can get tricked into living off of faith, hope, and love that are just balloons that we blew up with our own air rather than the unique power that is provided by God himself. We, 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 we must regularly resubstantiate our hope, meaning not that it loses its emphasis or that it loses its life, but when we don't know where the hope really comes from, what it's anchored in. Remember, again, when, we, when, the, when the disciples were duly convinced that Jesus had gotten out the grave, their hope was full. And so we, you and I, must regularly reacquaint ourselves with the words of Scripture, with the promise of Scripture, so that our faith remains substantive, our hope remains substantive, so that our definitions of love remain substantive. Love is not just a romantic, deep, intense feeling, but if we look at the ethics of the cross, it is sacrificially God who has no limits on his resources gives of himself to us. That's what the love of God looks like, and then we're called to replicate that. That's the substance of love. And so, 
My appeal is this, very simply, that the gospel gives us the opportunity to live in response to the spirit of the law and not just its letter. The letter of the law is not able to give this kind of lift to our faith, hope, and love. Because our faith, hope, and love is only as robust as we are feeling like we're fulfilling the tenets of the law. When it comes to this kind of big, robust faith, many people believe that faith is somehow conjured by those who just have, I don't know, like a crazy relationship with God. But let me tell you something where robust faith comes from. Robust faith comes from trusting God in these incremental, tiny moments of life where we obey him because obedience to God causes us to know him more deeply. Every time I obey my parent, every time I I obey someone, every time I, I follow through on the wishes of my wife, even though I may not fully understand why she's making this request, I come to know something additional about her and her character and her nature. That's what builds the faith. Obedience builds the faith. But but when obedience is done just out of compliance, it doesn't build anything. So this is what we're called to the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is called, come and know me by obeying me. And if you'll come and know me, you'll have regularly growing, snowballing faith. And this is why Jesus can say with confidence, if you ask anything in my name, because your life is marked by doing it under his authority. If you ask anything in my name, I'll do it. Because you've grown to know me not because you knew how to stamp me on your prayers. So we are called to know him as joint heirs. We're called to live above the law, above the law, with a life perspective that is far more robust than just trying to hold it together morally or even logically. The Lord is wanting to do something that is above and beyond anything that we might ever ask or think. He wants to do something that the the eye has not seen, the ears have not heard, and that have exceeded the imaginations of mankind. God is not interested in having his work in our lives be beholden to something as elementary as the law or elementary as the principles of the world. We are called to live above the law. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, I'm thankful to you today that you would open our eyes to the great gems of your word. And as I hear, Lord God, and see clearly that your gospel is an invite to enjoy how it is that you came as a man wearing all of the heaviness and the difficulty of what it means to to be a part of humanity, that you might not leave us there, but to redeem us from underneath the law and the world's elementary principles. Lord God, would you help me in the areas of my life? Would you help us where I have... Lord God, allow just the impulses of my world and the impulses of my own just local earthly desires to be the driving forces in my life. I want to live powerfully. I want to live by virtue of this new connection that you have given by way of your Holy Spirit. Lord God, would you teach us how to do that? As even as early as today, oh God, would you enliven my hope, my faith, and my love and my prayer life so that it is not just like what I did before I got saved, so that it is not just like what the world does, and it's just nothing but vocabulary and vain emotions and intense ambitions, oh God, but let it be substantive because of a deep resting in your work that you've completed on the cross. Lord God, if I'm a foreigner to the the great beauty of what you did in Christ, Lord God, help me to dive in. And through, Lord God, just the intimacy with your spirit and with your word, would you, Lord God, further feed my heart? Help me to know you, O God, through your word. Deliver me from discipline, Lord God, and drive me to devotion that I might know you more completely. 
This is our earnest prayer in the matchless and holy name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Let's worship him.